St. Petersburg is the most spectacular city on our planet. It has history and it has art like no other city in the world. The Winter Palace, the Hermitage, Catherine Palace and Peterhof in this city define imperial affluence. If I were to see only one city in the entire world, it would be St. Petersburg. Welcome back to a new season of the Global Nomad podcast. I am Dan Mayur. In these podcasts, I bring to you the experiences and impressions of my travels, giving you a new perspective on this fascinating world of ours. If you miss something, you can always skip back and listen again. These podcasts are based on my books, Global Nomad and The Four Ls where a lot more interesting information awaits you. After breakfast, I was just settling down in the hotel lobby with a city map in my hands when I heard a sweet voice with a little Russian accent. Hello, Mr. Mayur. Are you ready? I am Nadis. I was totally taken aback when I looked up. 30-something with a wide smile, Nadis could have been a flower child from San Francisco of the 1960s. She wore a long-sleeved colorful blouse, a tight leather skirt and knitted stockings. Her flowing long hair was dyed orange and purple that perfectly matched the colors on her blouse. We are going to Peterhof today, she said. She was from the travel agency. She had looked me up on Facebook and recognized me instantly. Her appearance floored me. I was not sure if this was what we had bargained for. But first impressions can be very deceiving. Not an establishment-hating hippie, this girl Nadis held two master's degrees, one in international relations and another in Russian history. As one would expect with such credentials, she turned out to be a treasure house of information. With their magnificent museums and palaces, large and lush gardens, Paris, London, Rome and Madrid have been the most popular destinations for discerning tourists. And then there are other great European cities like Venice, Milan, Lisbon, Barcelona, Berlin, Budapest, Prague and Vienna. Most with meticulously planned public places, some with delightful waterfronts and aesthetic bridges, and almost all with towering churches, spacious plazas, and famous statues and monuments that are architectural masterpieces. Major parts of these beautiful cities have grown organically over centuries. Now, imagine a brand new city, planned and developed from scratch and combining some of the best features of the famous older European cities. That was the dream of Tsar Peter the Great. He wanted the best of European art and architecture in one place, his place. So, 300 years ago, in the year 1703, he specially commissioned some of the greatest architects of Europe to build for him the city of his dreams. Today, with a population of 5 million, 
The port city of St. Petersburg is Russia's second largest metropolis after Moscow. Situated on the Neva River at the head of the Gulf of Finland on the Baltic Sea, it was the capital of Imperial Russia for 200 years since its inception until the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917. It is full of majestic government buildings, impressive palaces and splendid churches. No matter where you are in the city and where you look, you see soaring church spires, colorful domes and massive buildings of Baroque or neoclassical design. St. Petersburg is inscribed on the UNESCO World Heritage List as an area with 36 complexes of historical significance and around 4,000 outstanding architectural and cultural monuments. The entire city is an open-air museum with an unmistakable European influence. The city's traditional nicknames are Window on the West and Window to Europe. Yet, another pet name of St. Petersburg is the City of White Nights. Thanks to its closeness to the polar region, the summer nights here do not get completely dark for a month. Those are the romantic white nights that make this a popular destination for honeymooners. And it is the city of canals like Venice. The various areas of the city are connected by some 300 bridges. It is often called the Venice of the North. The official name of the city has gone through few iterations. Peter the Great named it Sankt Petersburg in Russian, which is St. Petersburg in English. In 1914, the imperial government renamed it Petrograd. Within 10 years, in 1924, after the death of Lenin, it was renamed in his honor as Leningrad. However, in 1991, after the fall of communism, the original name was restored. So it is now St. Petersburg again. St. Petersburg is a nation's cultural capital, rich and diverse in its offerings of libraries, concert halls and museums. Also located here is the world-famous Kirao Dance Company, now called Marinsky, the greatest center of music and ballet and historically home of brilliant dancers like Rudolf Nureyev, Natalia Makarova and Mikhail Barishnikov. The people of St. Petersburg are known to be among the most cultured in the world with their interest in the performing arts and fine arts similar to the Parisians. They are also people of supreme tenacity and great bravery. During World War II, German forces besieged Leningrad in June 1941. The siege lasted 872 days or almost two and a half years until 1944. This siege proved to be one of the longest and most destructive sieges of a major city in modern history. It isolated Leningrad from the rest of the world. One million civilians were killed, mainly from starvation. More than half a million others escaped or were evacuated. The city was largely depopulated. 
there was profoundly serious damage to the city remarkably it survived and literally rose from the ashes while most people know something about the russian revolution of 1917 few really know or understand that there were actually three revolutions the first attempt came as early as 1905 several years before that unrest had been brewing among the masses because of the profligate lifestyle of the tsars and the miserable conditions of the people nicholas ii the last tsar was generally mild and benign however he became exceedingly unpopular after the sunday on january 9 1905 that came to be known as the bloody sunday this is the first revolution the 1905 revolution in which about 14000 citizens died the country coasted along until 1917 when things boiled over far more violently and led to the 1917 revolution which in reality happened in two parts the situation leading to that 1917 revolution was created by russia's involvement in world war 1 in the four years of the war from 1914 to 1917 the russian army lost more than 3 million men the tsarina left alone in the palace while her husband went to the battlefield came under the influence of a con man rasputin and started making arbitrary decisions furthermore poor harvest and severe winter meant a lack of basic necessities like bread women got out in the streets crying one word kleb that is bread in russian some factory workers joined in on march the 2nd 1917 nicholas ii abdicated in total chaos a provisional government was formed this is the real russian revolution popular spontaneous and cataclysmic that took place in february and march of 1917 and ended the 300 year old romanov dynasty 8 months later in october to november 1917 the bolsheviks led by lenin carried out a bloodless coup against the provisional government while that is recognized as the russian revolution it was easy work compared to the uprising in february that brought the real revolutionary change in april 1917 after the february revolution lenin arrived by train in petrograd via finland this was a major historic event lenin delivered a thundering speech with a bombast and body language that would be copied later by dictators like hitler and mussolini in his speech he proclaimed long live the worldwide socialist revolution st petersburg is all history history of the tsars history of the revolution and history of the russian defiance of the germans in world war 2 it is etched in every nook and corner and every building of this great city and it all comes alive as you explore it with curiosity
The statue in Ploshard Lenina depicts Lenin speaking from an armored car. On the car is written Rag Kapitala, enemy of capital. His right arm is extended. His left hand is holding the lapel of his coat. That is powerful body language. I could almost hear his words shaking up his comrades into action. Almost every town in Russia has a prominent statue of Lenin like the ubiquitous Gandhi statues in India, each with its own historic significance. For anybody with the slightest interest in the history of the Russian Revolution, this is truly the proverbial candy store for a kid. There is one spot after another of great historic import. The magnificent Winter Palace, the most conspicuous building on the Neva, was an imperial palace for 150 years. Today it is one of the several buildings of the Hermitage Museum. It was a moving experience to walk into that small room in the Hermitage where the surrender was signed by the government representatives and the Bolsheviks. The room, the furniture and a clock showing the time of the surrender have been retained in the room as they were at that time. You are listening to a Global Nomad podcast. This is Dan Mayur. Peterhof is some 30 kilometers southwest of Center City, about 45 minutes away. On the way, Nadis talked at length about her family. Her father is a vegan and a yoga teacher. Her grandfather was a staunch supporter of the communist regime. I have had many similar conversations with my Russian friends. What generally comes out is often surprising, quite contrary to what one would expect. Today, most Russians seem happy with what they have. They are not looking to get into the US like people from many other parts of the world want to do. They have immense pride in their culture and their arts, and they all speak of the Tsars, the revolution and the Soviet rule, the fall of communism and the present government, all in a matter-of-fact way. Many of the older generation actually miss the Soviet rule because it guaranteed the minimum necessities of life to everybody. The younger generation is very much like young people anywhere They are environmentally conscious and career-driven with minimal focus on any specific political ideology. The live and let live philosophy rules. Peterhof, a UNESCO World Heritage Site, is a group of palaces and gardens on a sprawling wooded estate on the Gulf of Finland. Inspired by Louis XIV's Palace of Versailles on the outskirts of Paris, Peter the Great conceived and commissioned the construction of Peterhof beginning in 1709. Originally, it was intended as a country residence for him. Over the years, under subsequent rulers like his daughter Elizabeth and granddaughter-in-law 
Catherine the Great, the buildings were revamped, expanded, and renovated. Peter the Great also employed the landscaper designers of Versailles. He loved Europe and actually spent a few years there. He wanted the best of Europe to be brought to Russia. He succeeded in that brilliantly. The main building of Peterhof is relatively small, but it is a unique work of art with its dazzling gilded domes outside and sumptuous furnishings, rare paintings and beautiful statues in the ornate chambers inside. But I think its real beauty is outside in its 64 fabulous fountains scattered around in the vast expanse of its manicured French gardens. The main palace faces the Baltic Sea. Between the sea and the palace building is a lush landscape called the Lower Garden and has the most spectacular fountains. At the foot of the palace is a large semicircular pool. In the middle of the pool is an interesting sculpture of Samson and a lion. It shows Samson tearing open the jaws of a lion, representing Russia's victory over Sweden in the Great Northern War. It is doubly symbolic. The lion is a part of the Swedish coat of arms and the great victory was on St. Samson's Day. From the lion's mouth shoots a 20-meter-high jet. Peterhof was captured by the Germans in 1941 and held until 1944. Before the arrival of the German army, the Russians were able to save a portion of the treasures of the palace and the fountains. For safekeeping, they moved their precious cargo to remote locations in Siberia and to St. Isaac's Cathedral in the city. The Russians made a valiant effort to dislodge and push the Germans back, but to no avail. Many of the fountains were destroyed and the palace was partially bombed and left to burn. There was significant damage to the entire complex. War is ugly, irrational and indiscriminate. What is astonishing is that the Russians saved and preserved everything they could and then went on a systematic national effort to restore the entire place as before. Restoration work began almost immediately after the end of the war. It is to the credit of the Russians that they have retained the skills and crafts that have made their culture as rich as it is. Exploring Peterhof and walking the paradise of its majestic grounds is an exhausting all-day affair. I was delighted when Nadiz found a wonderful little Georgian restaurant tucked away in a small alley of the bustling Nevsky Prospect. That is the main drag of downtown St. Petersburg. I think Georgian food is among the most delicious in the world. I had the cool and creamy cucumber potato salad, piping hot kharcho. Kharcho is a spicy beef and rice soup and delicious kachapuri, a bread and cheese concoction. Over lunch, I could not stop thinking about Peterhof and the Kremlin and various other monuments around the country. There have been extraordinarily rich emperors and wealthy dynasties in the history of the world, but there is no parallel to the opulence of the Tsars. In much of the Western world today, a burning issue is gender equality, women's rights, 
and their equitable representation in politics and business. 300 years ago, Russia had accomplished all of that and more. Since the passing of Peter the Great in 1725, for most all of the remainder of the 18th century, Russia was ruled by a series of strong and ambitious women, starting with his niece Anna Ivanova for 10 years, his daughter Elizabeth for the next 22 years, and then his granddaughter-in-law Catherine the Great for 34 years. She ruled during the period of 1762 to 1796. This is an outstanding record. Among them, Elizabeth, known for her wardrobe of 15,000 dresses, that is the number of days in 41 years. She never wore a dress the second time. She was recklessly extravagant, while Catherine the Great was the most competent, ambitious, and aggressive. Catherine the Great is also known as Catherine II because Peter's wife, also with the same name, was Catherine I. The Catherine Palace, built by Peter for his wife, is one of the most spectacular edifices in Russia even today. Their daughter, Empress Elizabeth, converted the original building into a much grander structure in flamboyant Rococo style, the palace of today. It is a huge and ornate building, more than three football fields long, every room decorated with luxurious ornamentation of paintings, marble statues, and period furnishings. More than 100 kilograms of gold were used to gild the sophisticated stucco facade and numerous statues located on the roof. Catherine the Great enhanced it further. She was passionate about antique and neoclassical art. The palace is best known for its grand suite of formal rooms known as the Golden Enfilade. It starts at the spacious and airy ballroom, the Grand Hall or the Hall of Lights. It is filled with gilded wall carvings, ornate designs on the doors, walls of mirrors, and ornamental patterns of stylized flowers. In the evening, hundreds of lamps are lit on the chandeliers, the mirrors multiplying their impact and creating a totally surreal effect. Topping it all is the celebrated Amber Room. Stunning is the only word that describes it. Amber is fossilized tree resin of great natural beauty. Much valued from antiquity to the present as a gemstone, it is made into a variety of decorative objects and jewelry. The room walls have amber panels backed with gold leaf and mirrors. When the German forces retreated after the siege of Leningrad, they intentionally destroyed the palace, leaving only the hollow shell of the building behind. Prior to the war, the Soviets had documented a fair amount of the interior, which proved to be of great value in reconstructing the palace. You are listening to a Global Nomad podcast. This is Dan Mayur. The 
The metro in St. Petersburg is just as impressive as the one in Moscow, but only with fewer lines. A five-minute ride from our downtown hotel, and we arrived at the Nevsky Prospect Station, located on the street with the same name. This street goes from the Moskovsky train station all the way to the Winter Palace on the Neva. It is the most important commercial street in the city, with the usual fancy shops, hotels, and restaurants, and important buildings along it. The Russian National Library, the Singer Building of the Sewing Machine fame, and the Kazan Church that looks like St. Peter's at the Vatican. On the way are a number of bridges with spectacular views of the canals and the ornate four-story buildings on them. Walk along the Moika Canal, cross the Red Bridge, a few steps past the famed Astoria Hotel, and voila! We were looking straight at an imposing building with a gigantic golden dome that is visible from almost anywhere in the city. St. Isaac's Cathedral Of all the great attractions in St. Petersburg, one of my favorites is this cathedral. Besides being an important and artistically acclaimed church in the world, it is an engineering marvel with many firsts in building technology. In construction for 40 years, St. Isaac's is impressive inside out. A magnificent gilded dome and gigantic columns outside and beautiful art inside. The intricate carvings, marble statues and exquisite paintings reminded me of the superb art in the Sistine Chapel at the Vatican. The neoclassical exterior represents Russian Byzantine design with a large central dome. It is said to have influenced the architecture of the U.S. Capitol Dome in Washington. The outer walls are of grey and pink stone with 112 Corinthian columns of red granite, each a single block. The main dome, 100 meters high at the peak and plated with gold, is adorned with 12 statues of angels. These were the first large sculptures produced by the then novel process of electrotyping. During World War II, the dome was painted over in grey to avoid attention of the enemy aircraft. The church was used to store works of art that were carefully removed from places like Peterhof and the Catherine Palace in anticipation of German airstrikes. Fortunately, the German did not bomb St. Isaac's. They must have left it intact as a reference point for their bombers. A brainchild of Catherine the Great, the Hermitage is the second largest art display in the world. A museum par excellence, it is rich in its collection, comparable to the Louvre in Paris. It was founded in 1764 when Catherine acquired a portfolio of paintings from a Berlin merchant. Since then, the museum has been expanded several folds. Its collections, of which only a small part is on permanent display, include over 3 million items with the largest collection of paintings in the world. Think about it. 3 million items. If one were to see the entire collection at normal visitor pace, it would take 8 years to see it all. We had 4 hours. 
Catherine the Great must have had a sense of humor. She named this place of unimaginable opulence as the Hermitage. A Hermitage is the home of a hermit or a recluse. The building was given this name because of its exclusivity. Initially, only very few people close to the royals were allowed to visit it. It was not a public museum then. Catherine was a genuine connoisseur of art and made a lasting impact on the art world. Through her interest and support of art, she gained European acknowledgement and acceptance and succeeded in portraying Russia as an enlightened society. She was immensely proud of this feat. Her muse was Minerva, the Roman goddess of wisdom, medicine, commerce, poetry and the arts. In many ways, Minerva is similar to the Greek goddess Athena. Catherine longed to be called Catherine the Minerva. After the revolution in 1917, the Hermitage and the Winter Palace were proclaimed state museums and eventually merged by the Soviets. The Soviets hated the Tsars but not the art or their material possessions. To their credit, they rightly considered those possessions, the artworks, the museums, the palaces to be national wealth for the enjoyment of all citizens. They made a serious and visible effort to restore, preserve and protect that wealth. I often dream of India's Rashtrapati Bhavan being converted into a national museum to be enjoyed by all Indians. It is an anachronism and a total waste of a national asset on a ceremonial position of the president often occupied by mediocre political appointees that are intellectual dwarfs. In 1931, American Andrew Mellon acquired 21 works of art from the Hermitage and donated those to form a nucleus of the National Gallery of Art in Washington. During World War II, the Russians moved two trainloads of museum collections to safer places in Siberia. Soon thereafter, two bombs and a number of shells hit the Hermitage building during the siege. After the war ended, in October 1945, the evacuated collections were brought back and the museum reopened. In real life, there is always a give back. At the end of the war, it was now the Russians invading and looting Germany. The Russian army took home a lot from German museums and private collections. That loot now is in the Hermitage. The winner takes it all. Among the paintings at the Hermitage, there are amazing works of Da Vinci, Raphael, Van Gogh, Monet, Manet, Renoir, Rembrandt and so many others. In 1985, a mentally deranged man attacked Rembrandt's famous painting Danae. He threw sulfuric acid on the canvas and cut it twice with his knife causing serious damage to it. After years of painstaking meticulous work, the Hermitage experts restored this masterpiece to its original form. It is now behind armor glass. 
The Hermitage is an amazing monument to human creativity and artistic talent. In a span of 3 to 4 hours, you can barely begin to scratch the surface. But that is enough to stun and mesmerize you. It is an experience. I would love to know what you thought of this episode. If you please, do write to me an email at danmayur at hotmail.com. And if you liked the episode, do share it with your friends. I believe in making these podcasts free and accessible to all. I am Dan Mayur, the executive producer and narrator. Thanks for listening.